Take your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. I was looking here at my bottled water, and it says that it's been oxygenated with ozone. I'm hoping that that's a good thing. Really not sure, but uh, maybe I'll just maybe I'll just preach the house down. Have so much energy from the oxygenated ozone, or not? You know, the Christmas season. We were talking in young adult Sunday school class. It is so common for people to be battling depression, gloominess a little anxiety during this time. I asked the class, why do you suppose that that is? They offered some very, very insightful answers. I'll share some of them with you. Uh, One said it's because of the weather, the lack of sunshine, and that affects us physically as well as mentally, vitamin D deficiency and so forth. Uh, Someone mentioned family pressures. You've got in-laws or outlaws or whatever the case may be. Come holiday time, everybody's trying to figure out when are we going to get together. Well, this doesn't work for this person. This doesn't work for this person. And sometimes it ends up being problems and fusses and compromises and frustrations and so forth. I hope I'm not reminding too many of you of your problems today. Uh, some, it has to do with the hectic schedule, so many events and parties and plays and practices and so forth that can certainly affect us um, mentally and emotionally. Uh, for some, it's the financial pressure, uh, feeling the pressure of giving gifts when the budget is very tight. And for others, it's a time where we're reminded of the loss of loved ones during a special uh, Christmas time and so forth, where we miss our parents or our grandparents or so forth. Well, we read here in 1 Peter chapter 1, and beginning in verse number 6, we're going to see that there's a way that we can focus on something other than all of these depression, gloomy, anxiety type of causes. Verse number 6, the scripture says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Manifold being many. Temptations, struggles, trials, failures, you name it. Sometimes we are in heaviness because of life itself. Verse number 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now watch verse number 8. This is where our text comes from. It says, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I'd like to try to get our attention off of all of the depression and anxiety causing things today and focus on something that verse 8 says, whom having not seen, ye love. And I want to talk to you about the nature of God here today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you tell us about yourself. Lord, we are, uh, we acknowledge this morning that you are an awesome God beyond our comprehension. But Lord, we're so thankful that through the scripture we can know you. And I pray now that you would bless this congregation today. Help us to put our focus upon you. Lord, to learn some things about you today that would draw us closer to you. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work. If there be anyone here today that has never trusted Christ as their personal Savior, who has never been saved, we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to that heart and draw them to a personal relationship with you through salvation. Lord, we pray that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and glorified, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. A modern preacher proudly proclaimed, and I quote, 
I don't preach doctrinal sermons. They are boring and people don't understand or relate to them. I am a preacher, not a theologian. You know, folks, that is a foolish statement. And perhaps this mentality is the root of Christianity's many problems today. And they are many. We need theology. We need Bible doctrine. In fact, I'm holding a book in my hand that is primarily a theological book. This book tells me the things about God that He wants me to know. I don't get frustrated with the things that I don't understand. I get excited about the things that this book tells me about that I can understand. What a great big God that we have. The nature of God is something that we need to think about. We need to study about. We certainly need to preach about it. To say we don't preach doctrine because it's boring and people can't relate to it. How would you like it? If somebody tried to sell you a life insurance policy, and let's say, for instance, the name of their company was not something that really had a lot of credibility to it, kind of like when you go through the store and you see the no-name type products, uh, we have a kind of a staple in our house. I like those cheap iced oatmeal cookies. Now, you can go over to, I think it's Food Lion, and they have a brand in there that is cheap stuff, and the brand is called Cha-Ching. Got a picture of a piggy bank. You've, Sam, you've seen that before. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm glad that they're cheap and they're still good. But you know what? I don't know that I'd be really confident in a life insurance company that was Cha-Ching Life. And, and if someone did try to sell me a policy from Cha-Ching Life, I'd probably want to know a little bit about the company. And say, for instance, that the salesman said, oh, you don't need to know all about the company and the policy. That's boring. All you need to do is just pay the bill. Just pay the premium. That's all you have to worry about. You would say that's ridiculous. Well, it's about as ridiculous as this preacher's statement saying we don't preach theology because people can't relate to it. Listen, I want to know more about God, don't you? Somebody that has the Holy Spirit, God living inside of him, has a, an innate natural desire to want to know something more about him. Now, I think that you would agree with me that it is impossible to love someone that we do not understand. Now, I almost decided not to say that because husbands don't necessarily understand their wives. But I'm not talking on that level. I don't always, I certainly don't always understand women in general. And ladies, you don't always understand men, even though you think you do. But I do understand enough about my wife to know that I love her. And the same thing goes with God. If we can't really, if we don't know who He is, it's very difficult to love Him, and yet God commands us to love Him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way. And when thou liest down and when thou risest up, God says, I command you to love me and I command you to make me the center of your life. Now, if I were to say to someone that I want you to love me with all of your heart and I want you to think about me all of the time, you'd say, I'm arrogant. But not God, because God is God. And He is holy, as we saw last week, and He is our Creator, and He created us for His pleasure. He is not there for us. We are here for Him. 
We find in the New Testament that Jesus backed this up and said in Matthew 22, verse 36, He was asked, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The more we understand God, now I'm saying understand, I'm not using the word comprehend. We can't fully comprehend an an infinitely holy and amazing God. But we can understand Him, and the more that we understand, the easier it will be for us to love Him. Martin Luther was asked one time, do you love God? This was during the time in his life he hadn't been born again yet. He was still struggling as he read the Scripture, realized how that God was holy and how that God expected holiness as we saw last week. Martin Luther, during that time in his life, made a statement. He said, love God. He said, I hate God. Now, he said that because he was under conviction and guilt, and no matter how hard that he worked to try to merit the grace of God, he would, you know, there are some religions that say that baptism or uh, communion or mass or giving or doing and all of these things are what makes us acceptable to God. Martin Luther was honest with himself and he acknowledged that the more that I try to meet the demands of God, the more I find out that I'm just a failure. And Martin Luther in his desperation thought, love God, how can I love a God that I cannot seem to satisfy? Now God never does lower the bar. God has the standard of holiness. But what Martin Luther failed to realize is that Jesus Christ is the one who met the bar. Jesus Christ is the one. And so Martin Luther discovered to his joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, that Jesus Christ took care of it and that he would be, he could be justified by faith in Jesus Christ, not by his own religious works. And at that point in his life, he began to love God. The first aspect of God by his nature that I'd like to talk about tonight, uh, this morning, is the invisible God. You know, God is invisible. In 1 Timothy 1.17, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's an invisible God. In 1 John chapter 4, Verse number 12, the Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. You know, this is a a kind of a side sermon, so to speak, but, you know, we haven't seen God. We cannot see God. But do you know that when we have the love of God in our heart, and we share and communicate that love of God to others, do you know that people are seeing God in us? What a wonderful privilege. Boy, that ought to make all of us as God's children loving people. If we were to love people the way that we ought to, instead of judging and criticizing people and thinking, well, people don't live up to my standard. God didn't say that we're the standard. God said He's the standard. You know, my job as a preacher is to tell people the truth. But you know, when I walk down off of this pulpit, it's not my job to judge you. I tell you the truth. And then as a Christian, as a brother in Christ, it's my responsibility to love you. Listen, we're all going to be judged by God, not by one another. And so truth and love, that is the ministry. That, I believe, is still effective today. We don't have to cut corners. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to try to make results. We've just got to tell people the truth of the Word of God and then love them with a Christ-like love. John 4.24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Take your Bibles and go to Exodus chapter number 24. Exodus 24, I made reference to this in last week's sermon, 
but I think that it would be important for us to see it for ourselves. Now remember, we're talking about an invisible God. If something or someone is invisible, then that means that you can't see them. They're there, but you just can't see them with your eyes. In Exodus 24, and verse number 9, it says, Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. Notice what it says in verse number 10. And they saw the God of Israel. Now wait a minute, preacher. You already showed us from the Bible that no one has seen God at any time. And yet we find here that Moses, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70, 74 people, it says that they saw the God of Israel. Verse 11, and upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. How do we explain that the Bible says no one's seen God, and yet this says that they did? Take a look at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Now Moses saw the God of Israel, but Moses had enough to dis- discernment to recognize that he wasn't seeing the whole picture. Moses, if you'll recall, heard the voice of God in the burning bush. Moses had had conversations. In fact, the Bible says that God would talk to Moses face to face just as a man would talk to a man. Other prophets, other people, God would speak to in dreams and visions, but not with Moses. He would have direct conversations with God. Have you ever felt that God spoke to your heart? I've had times where I've actually told people, hey, God spoke to my heart and I just knew it, but I never heard it in an audible, I never heard it with my physical ears, but I certainly would hear God speaking to me in His heart. That's something that I can tell, but I cannot fully explain. People will say, well, how do you know that it was God speaking to you? Well, if if you're saved and you know the Scripture, first of all, you're going to recognize it because what God says is going to be consistent with what the Scripture has written. God is never going to say anything that contradicts Scripture. But I know as a believer, the longer that I go in this thing, the more that I'm able to recognize that still small voice of God. Not in my ears, but in my heart. And sometimes it's trial and error. I've had times where I felt that God was telling me or giving me a certain direction, only to find out that the direction that I took was a foolish direction. One thing that I've tried to do that not all Christians can do is when I miss the boat, I try to admit that I missed the boat. Have you ever noticed that God gets the blame for so many things? Well, God led me to do such and such. And such and such was a really dumb mistake. And we blame God that God led us. Listen, God's never going to lead you into anything foolish or sinful. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect, but it just means that we can't always blame our mistakes on God. In fact, we can't ever blame our mistakes on God. At least we shouldn't. Exodus 33, and look with me at verse number 12. And Moses said unto the Lord... See, thou sayest unto me, bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people." And he said, this is God speaking back to Moses, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. I want you to think about from Moses' perspective. They've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. They're looking for a land that flows with milk and honey. 
I mean, you compare in, in your mind. I don't know what a land that flows with milk and honey looks like. I, I don't know if there's, you know, I always vision the, the, the creeks running white with milk. And then all of the trees that grow on the side of the creek, you know, you just got honey dripping down. You know, that kind that you just, you know, you, you go up to the tree and you just hold your biscuit out. Kind of like, kind of like the, the dispense. I, I, I like the fast food places that have the pump ketchup, don't you? I mean, I like, I like a lot of ketchup with my fries. And by the time I get all the little packets open, and get three little squirts out, my fries are cold. So it's like, you know, just take the, take the fries up there and just pump ketchup. Well, it's the same way. Have you ever had, you ever had the, the bottom of the honey jug that you're trying to get that on your biscuit? And it's like, oh my goodness, it's taking forever. You know, you can see it just dripping down. It's like, come on, you can't, I mean, shake it all you want, but that honey's so thick, it just ain't moving fast. I like the idea of just taking my biscuit up to like a pump thing and just filling it up with. But before that, you got to have butter over here, right? Because with milk flowing, you can also make butter. Man, it just that sounds like a great place. When I think about the wilderness of Sinai and the desert and rock and sand and sagebrush, I don't know about you, but I'd be looking forward to crossing over that river into that land, wouldn't you? And yet Moses had enough sense to say, God, if you don't go with us, it ain't going to be worth going. And you know what, brothers and sisters, that's the way that our life is. If God doesn't go with, if God's with us, the wilderness will be a tropical paradise. But if you go to a tropical paradise without God, it's going to be a wilderness. Moses understood that. He said, God, if you don't go, we don't want to go. Verse 16, For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Now, verse 18, Moses, the same one that was part of the 74 people that the Scripture says they saw the God of Israel, in this dialogue of God's glory and God's presence, Moses makes a statement. He said, I beseech thee, in verse 18, show me thy glory. Moses perceived that what he saw with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders, it was an, a presentation of God, but it wasn't God in His glory. Verse 19, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Adam saw God, but not after sin. Not after, I mean, God would walk with Adam there in the garden, but after Adam fell, God showed up, but not in his glory, because sinful man, we literally could not handle seeing God in His glory. These human bodies could not contain what we would feel and experience, what it would do to our mind. I don't know what would happen. Uh, maybe we'd drop dead. Maybe just every atom in our body would just disintegrate because of the glory of God. I don't know, but all I know is that God says, you cannot see my glory because you cannot handle it. Now notice here in verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with uh, my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand. Thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. 
So Moses was able to just kind of see the, the shadow. You know, God moved his hand. He saw the back part. But even that, when Moses came down off the mountain, the Bible says his face was shining. He was radioactive, folks. I mean, it affected him. He was glowing because of just seeing the hinder parts of God through that shadow being protected. Remember back in when you were young, when I was young anyhow, when there would be um, a lunar eclipse in, in school, they'd have you make these little boxes out of paper and tape them together and have a little hole in them. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And, and you could look at the eclipse through that little hole, but you couldn't look at it or it would, I guess, burn your retinas because of all of the radiation that would be coming off of that eclipse. I guarantee you what Moses saw was a lot like that. God says, hey, I'm just going to let you see this a little bit through a hole because you wouldn't be able to handle all of my glory. Well, the Bible says in First John, excuse me, the invisible God appears in many forms. We find that God appeared walking with Adam in the garden. The Bible refers to the angel of the Lord, the appearance of the Lord. God would show up as an angel. I believe personally that when Abraham met Melchizedek, I believe that that was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I believe that it was God. Uh, we find that uh, Moses, that God showed up in a burning bush. We find in the book of Daniel that when uh, when Nebuchadnezzar looked in the fire where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were, he said, I see a fourth man loose in the fire, and he looks like the Son of God. That was God showing up in some type of a physical form. We find that God descended as a dove when Jesus was baptized. We find that God descended as cloven tongues there in Acts at Pentecost among the disciples. The invisible God appears in many forms, but we cannot see Him in His glory because He is invisible. That brings us to number two. In order to understand the invisible God, we need to understand that God is a triune God. Take a look at Ephesians chapter number 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2. When I say triune God, the common theological term today is the Trinity. Now, those who oppose the doctrine of the Trinity, I will say this, someone who opposes the doctrine of the Trinity has to change or ignore a lot of Bible. And what they'll claim sometimes is that the word Trinity does not appear in the Scripture. Well, I understand that. It's a word that we use to describe a God who appears in three persons. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 16 says, And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Verse 16 is talking about Jews and Gentiles both getting salvation through the cross of Christ. And then verse 17 it says, And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. The Gentiles were far off, the Jews were nigh. Verse 18, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Verse 18 has the Trinity in it, even though you don't see the word Trinity. You've got Jesus who died on the cross. He's preaching peace. And through the Spirit, we have access to the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that most of you, uh, even some of you younger folks here, might have heard of Abbott Costello and their dialogue on who's on first. How many of you know what I'm talking about? All right, here's a little um, theological spoof on Abbott and Costello. Abbott says to Costello, when you come to church, you need to know the key players. You know, the ones who are worthy of honor and praise. Honor and praise, huh? Well, who are they? Okay, now listen closely. There is one God. One God, that seems easy enough. 
What do you call this one God? Uh, This one God is called God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, wait just a minute. You told me that there is only one God. That's right. So which is it? So which is what? Which name do you use for the one God? The name I gave you. But you gave me three names. That's right. What's right? (laughs) God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So you have three gods. No, one God. So which is it? Which is what? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Yes. (laughs) Yes to what? That's God's name. Which God? Our one God. Why did you give three names? Because they aren't the same. But you just told me there is one God, so which is it? Which is what? Which name is the name of your God? I told you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that is three. Yes, but it's only one. People have been trying to figure out the Trinity ever since God revealed Himself to man. I don't fully comprehend. I've heard some analogies. People talk about water can be in three forms. You've got vapor, you've got solid, you've got liquid. In fact, much, it's interesting. You ever notice that when somebody creates something or designs something, that typically their nature or personality typically is seen in their art or in their handiwork? In the same way, all the way down to a um, a biological and microscopic level, we find that so many things in God's creation come in threes, just as God is a triune being. But whether we understand it or not, whether the water analogy, some people have said that uh, the Trinity is like a football. You have the outer leather case. Inside of that, you have a rubber bladder. And then inside of that, you have air. I've heard all of these, but none of them will fully help us to comprehend a triune God. So what do we do? Well, 1 John 5, 7 says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. You know what? I would say to Abbott and Costello, You don't have to figure it out. You just have to believe it because God says it. And if God says that He is three persons but only one God, I don't have to be able to fully understand that in my mind. I can just trust that God knows who He is. And if that's what He says, then that's the way that it is. In John 1, verse 1 through 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. You know what you have here, folks? John 1, verse number 1, is identical to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You know who God is in Genesis 1.1? It's the same as Jesus Christ in John 1.1. And notice here it says in John 1.14, just a few verses later, It says, and the Word, capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us. John is revealing to us who the capital W Word is. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, our hands have, we beheld His glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. John said, our hands have handled of the Word of life. We touched Him. John laid on the bosom of Jesus Christ there at the Last Supper, literally touching God who was manifest in the flesh. The triune nature of God is a mystery, not a puzzle. You try to solve a puzzle, but you stand in awe of a mystery. And that brings us to my last point this morning. And number three, we've already alluded to it, but we need to talk about the deity of Christ. What do we mean by deity of Christ? We mean that Christ was and is God. He was not created by God. He's not a lesser God. While He is called the Son of God, it's also important that we remember that He also is God. Matthew one twenty three. we hear this a lot during the Christmas season. Matthew one twenty three. Behold, a virgin 
shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. I can't fathom that. Can you fathom how that an invisible God can somehow impregnate a virgin woman and become a baby? How can God in His glory, I mean the same one that showed up at the burning bush, the same one that wrestled with Jacob, the same one that walked with Adam in the cool of the day, the same one that walked with Enoch and said, Hey Enoch, I like walking with you so much, I want you to spend the day with me. Come on up hither. Enoch's been walking with God ever since because there is no night in heaven. This is the same God, this is the same Jesus that came down a baby in a virgin womb, born in Bethlehem, God who left His glory in heaven to come down, I think I said it last week and it's worth saying again, to come down to this dump and to live as a human being. What an amazing God that we have who would come down in the form of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Hey, if that's not enough proof for you, then hey, how about where the Bible comes right out and says it? 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And it is a great mystery to think that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man. You got that one figured out yet? Because I sure don't. I've been studying this Bible for 30 some years and I mean, if the Lord gives me another 30-some years, I'll keep studying. And I tell you right now, I'm never going to have that one figured out. How could anyone be 100% of two different things? I, I don't see how that's possible. But Jesus Christ, great is this mystery of godliness. Notice what it says. It says that God, capital G, was manifest in the flesh. I understand that, don't you? That tells me that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh. Now, there are some modern versions of the Bible that leave that word God out. And they change it to He who was manifest in the flesh. Uh, Listen, my Savior is not a He who. He's God. He was and He is And He always has been, and He always will be God. And thank God He was manifest in the flesh. Colossians 2, verse number 9 says, For in Him, Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I mentioned earlier that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Scripture. But I'll tell you the word that does appear, and that's the word Godhead. Because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that is the Godhead. And the Scripture tells me that all of the fullness of the entire Trinity was bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that tells me that there were times while He was here on this earth that His deity was not lost, but it was just simply set aside. I guess put on the shelf, if you will. There were things that Jesus experienced in order for Him to truly experience the life that we experience, His deity would have had to have been placed on the shelf. There would have had to have been things that He didn't know and didn't perceive and He had to learn and He had to grow. I I, I don't know, but maybe when He was young, maybe, maybe He made a mistake. Now, I'm not saying he ever committed a sin, but I do know this, that he helped his father. I'm I'm sure that he probably helped his father when he was young, who was a carpenter. The carpenter in Bible days wasn't necessarily someone who built houses, but they were someone who made things out of wood, furniture, furnishings in a house, and they were always working with their hands. 
They didn't have power tools like what I have in my shop. They had to make everything by hand. And you know what? When you work with wood with your hands, uh, you make mistakes. I'm sure that there were probably times where young 10-year-old Jesus was trying to carve something, trying to plane something, and his hand slipped, and he came to Dad, and he said, Dad, I, I messed this up. Now, this is speculative. I understand that. I hope that you're not taking issue with me because I'm saying emphatically that he never committed a sin. But he did experience some things so that God could relate to us. And I'm thankful for that. How could he do that? And yet, in his ministry, there were times where he would perceive things that only God could perceive. For some reason, God would just kind of take that deity off the shelf and Jesus would use it. When he'd get done using it, perform that miracle, read that person's mind, do whatever he had to do, then he'd take that deity and place it back on the shelf and then he's just the son of man, the son of Adam, just like you and I. I can't fully understand that, but I'm glad that it is the way that it is. All the fullness of the Godhead Bodily was in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Take your Bibles with me. Go to Colossians chapter number 1. A couple more places to look at, and then we'll, um, we'll conclude the message today. Colossians chapter number 1. I don't know about you, I, I, I hope that uh, you're not like that modern preacher. When I start thinking about the deity of Christ, the holiness of God, the trinity of God, I don't find it boring at all. I find it interesting, I find it exciting, I find it exhilarating that I can learn these things about God even though I cannot fully uh, get so familiar like I comprehend who he is. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 13, the Bible says, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. This isn't a question, by the way. It's the who is referring to Jesus. He delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. I like that verse, don't you? That tells me that when I got saved, when I trusted Christ to save me, He translated me. He moved me from one place to the other. Before I got saved, I was in darkness and I was part of Satan's kingdom. But praise the Lord, when I got born again, He translated me into the kingdom of His dear Son. Verse 14, in whom... We have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Listen, religion can't save you. No church can save you. Baptism can't save you. Giving an offering cannot save you. Being good to your neighbor cannot save you. The only thing that can save you is the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was shed upon Calvary's cross. Verse 15, still speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Folks, that's the deity of Jesus Christ right there. He, all the fullness of God is bodily, and Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Listen, you're not going to see the Trinity... You're going to see, when when we see God, what we're going to see with visible eyes is Jesus Christ, God the Son. He is the image of the invisible God. 
Turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 1. Hebrews chapter 1 says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, that just means variety, different times, different ways, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory, watch this, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, I find several places in the scripture that in heaven, God the Son and God the Father will be distinguishable. I don't know that we will actually see a an image of God the Father. It could just be a brightness. It could just be light. But in heaven, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. When Stephen was getting ready to go into eternity, when they stoned him, he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God. So in heaven, there's something distinguishable between God the Father and God the Son. But as far as we're concerned, Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. In John 14, in verse number 7, Philip saith unto the Lord, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus said to Philip, He said, Philip, have I been so long with time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? He said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest then, Show us the Father. And then, of course, Thomas, in John twenty twenty eight, Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. How many times was Jesus referred to as Lord and God and times that He was worshipped and never a single time did He ever rebuke the person for calling Him that or for worshipping Him. Why? Because Jesus was, is, and always has been and always will be God manifest in the flesh. In conclusion... I'd like to point out Acts 20, verse number 28, where we see the Trinity at work, not necessarily doctrinally declared, but asserted in this text, where Paul says in Acts 20, 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God. So it's God's church, which he hath purchased, with his own blood. Listen, it was the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross to purchase you and I. And that tells me that God purchased us with his own blood. I can figure that out, can't you? That Jesus was God in the flesh. When he died on the cross... He died to pay for your sins. Are you a member of His flock? Listen, we talk about church membership or joining this church or this religion or that. That's not what we're talking about here today. We're talking about a spiritual experience. When I came into this world, I didn't come into this world as being part of God's flock. I came into this world as being part of the devil's flock. And you know what? So did you. That's just the, the fact of the matter. We come into this world uh, being alienated from God, being enemies with God. Listen, we don't... Sinning isn't what makes us sinners. We sin because we already are sinners. Your children, you, if you'll recall, you didn't have to teach them how to sin. They figured it out on their own, some better than others. That's the way that we come into this world. We come into this world with a need. We come into this world with an emptiness. We come into this world with a sin problem. And the only solution to that sin problem is the cross 
of Calvary and the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a member of his flock? I'd like to close with our opening text and add one verse to it. First Peter chapter 1, verse number 8. Whom having not seen, ye love. Do you love him this morning? I've never seen him, but I sure do love him. I'm glad that I can sing that song, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. Having not seen, ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Verse number 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. If you are not saved here today, we'd like to invite you to Jesus Christ. You know, it's not about doing any religious deeds. It's not about being part of any particular religion or church. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is universal. It's really quite simple. God's looking for sinners who will acknowledge that they're sinners, be willing to repent, and be willing to put their faith and their trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. You know what religion tends to do with salvation? Most of uh, American religions, most world religions for that matter, have some type of a, a form of getting to God that we have to do something. But true Christianity is not about do, it's about done. It's what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary. Religion will say, yeah, well, we believe that that's important to believe in Jesus, but Jesus only saves you a certain percentage. We have to add to that. We have to help God out. We have to, you know, maybe Jesus saves us 90%, but I have to have communion or I have to give money or I have to attend church in order to help out that 10%. Listen, if you're trusting in Jesus plus what you do, then you're not truly trusting in Jesus. The way to get saved is to repent of all of those false religious thoughts and deeds and just simply say, you know what? What Jesus did on the cross of Calvary is totally sufficient. I'm going to trust Jesus for my salvation. Plus nothing, minus nothing. If you will trust Him and call upon Him to save you, He'll save you right there where you're at. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You for the Word of God. Thank You, Lord, for the deity of Christ. Thank You, Lord, that it was Your blood that was shed upon Calvary's cross for our sins. Thank You, Lord, that You rose again the third day. Thank You that we can be saved and part of Your flock. I pray that You'd bless each and every one that's here today. May the Holy Spirit speak to us, draw us to a better understanding and a right relationship with You. There be anyone here today that's not saved, Lord, we ask you to save them before they leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.